Amen. Well, good morning again, church. I'm Stephen Dickinson, uh, the lead pastor around here. And uh, we're in week four of a six-week series. We're calling it Belong, but it's really focusing on church membership. And so we've been uh, kind of digging into some New Testament scripture that help us understand that while we know that life together isn't always easy, um, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's always worth it. Life is just better together. The support, the encouragement, the fellowship, the friendship, the mission, the ministry, the purpose of our existence. Listen, we were created to do life together, but Christian community doesn't come naturally. Life in Christ and life in the culture or in the world, they are constantly competing with one another. And that's why the, the New Testament is, is filled with instructions on how to be a member of the body of Christ, right? A member of the church. And today, is, it's going to sound like a, a selfish message to you, but just stick with me because it really is um, about all of us. Um, it's for the entire body of believers. So we're, we're following this little book that, that's called I Am a Church Member, and chapter Four, which is what we're in today, it's entitled, I Will Pray for My Church Leaders. Uh, To dedicate a whole chapter out of only six to this one topic may seem a little excessive or unusual, but it really speaks to the destructive power of our spiritual enemy and the need for protection. It's interesting how many Christians are just sort of all over the map with what they believe about their spiritual enemy or the unopposing force or the devil or Satan or, or whatever you want to call it. And I will use those terms interchangeably this morning. I mean, there are some Christians who never talk about Satan because they really don't believe in a, in a, in a real Satan. He's a, a legendary figure in their mind, some, a symbol of evil out in the world and in their hearts, really not a person. Others may talk about their spiritual enemy all the time, right? And every time the toast burns or something doesn't go their way, Satan was behind it and it's time for an exorcism. (laughs) But those two extremes are not very helpful because somewhere in the middle lies a very real and present danger. And, And no matter what you believe or don't believe concerning this matter, let's see what the Word of God says about it. In the Old Testament, uh, book of Job, chapter 1, verse 6, says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. So the Hebrew word used there for Satan is um, hasatan. That's where we get Satan from. We shorten it. Um, And it means the adversary. The Apostle John calls him the same thing in the book of Revelation. And in fact, all throughout the New Testament, We see references to Satan or the devil or the evil one, letting us know that there is a real person, a a spiritual enemy, an adversary that is working to separate us from God and one another. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We just got through praying the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples when they said, "Um, Lord, will you teach us how to pray, 
right? They had been praying. They had a prayer life, but Jesus was doing it differently. And they were like, we, we know how to pray. We want to pray like you pray or teach us how. What, how does this work? And so he teaches the Lord's Prayer. And about halfway through it, he throws this line in there. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This line in the Lord's Prayer is a request for protection because God knows we have an enemy. Through his word, God warns us that that Satan exists and he's powerful and he's actively seeking to destroy or to disrupt what we do in the name of Christ. Now, one of the more successful schemes of Satan that he pursues is just the destruction of the local church. We've mentioned this before, that the local church is the physical representation of Jesus Christ on earth. Therefore, it is the light and the hope of the world and Satan wants it gone. Or at least he wants it very dysfunctional. And one of the most effective ways that he can destroy a local congregation is to take out the leaders. Trip them up. Make them stumble. Lead them into sin. If our spiritual enemy can get me or someone on the staff or someone serving in a leadership role to do something immoral or unethical, the damage to the body is immeasurable. We see it all the time. As Christians, there's a target on our back, on mine, on yours. Satan doesn't want us to be effective for the cause of Christ. And the greater your role or responsibility within the local church of Jesus Christ, the bigger the target. And and for pastors and and church staff leader and other leaders, uh, no matter what title has been designated to you, there are higher expectations for living than everybody else. Whether we like it or not, there's a different standard because much is at stake. We, we never want to do something that's going to cause somebody else to stumble, and at the same time, we want to be living a life that sets an example, like Christ set for us, for other people to follow. And as we strive to do that, our spiritual enemy's goal is to cause us to stumble, to go down in flames. So we need protection. Here's a few standards of the church leaders that a much older Paul is teaching to a much younger, his protege, Timothy. This is some selected verses out of 1 Timothy. Now, the overseer of the local congregation is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's traps. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. The standards for living are high for church leaders. And they should be. But no matter what role the leader is filling in the church, our spiritual enemy doesn't want us to succeed. Um. 
That's why Paul repeatedly asked for prayers from the congregations that he came in contact with or planted or knew about. Ephesians 6, 19. Paul says, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 2, uh, 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. 1 Thessalonians 5, 25. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. As for... Other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And then in Romans 15.30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggles. How? By praying to God for me. Clearly, Paul considered prayer a necessity for ministry. And those who were praying for him, he considered for them to be partners in that ministry. And that's what you guys are for us, for the staff, for the leaders, for me. We're partners. We're all in this together. The leadership may have different roles, just like we have, we're kind of representing different parts of the body, but together we make up the whole. We need each other. I pray for you guys all the time, and I'm asking you to pray for me and the staff and the leadership of this church. Pray for our board of stewards. Since this is a new church, they're having to make big decisions all the time that are shaping this new church and will impact lives for years to come. And none of us are perfect, but by the grace of God, uh, we've got a pretty healthy church right now. We're exactly the type of church that our spiritual enemy is coming after. He, he, He wants a growing church. Churches that are at peace with themselves. Churches that are experiencing joy. Churches that love to be together. Because these are the churches, or these are the people that present the greatest threat to his power over a family or a community or the nation. Because who else is going to respond to the lies that the devil is spreading out there in society? The culture isn't. The world's eating it up. It's the church's role and responsibility to spread truth, which stands in direct opposition to lies. And John says this about Satan in chapter 8, verse 44. says that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So if our foundation as a church is the, the truth of God's word, then we are at the top of the enemy's hit list. We just are. We are, we are a united body. We've got great plans. We want to reach new people for the cause of Christ. We want to teach people about the gospel. We want to have an impact in our community and other communities and really around the world. We're growing in numbers and maturity and love and good works. And these are the reasons that we are a perfect target for our spiritual enemy. He doesn't bother with unloving, confused, and divided congregations. They're already destroying themselves perfectly fine without him. It's the ones that are united. It's the ones that have found a balance between God's grace and his written word. The ones that are providing faithful witness to Jesus Christ, that's that's who he's after. And so as we continue to grow and, and mature, we run the risk of being attacked 
we can't get confused. We can't get lackadaisical in our disciplines of prayer and study and fellowship. We've got to be diligent and methodical in our approach to kingdom building. Because of Satan's elusiveness and his trickery, we've got to be on guard all the time. You know, he doesn't always trip us up with big headline scandals. Oftentimes, it's just little subtle changes. Minor situations that appear not to be that big of a deal, but eventually we find out they were leading us down the wrong road. And we didn't see it in the beginning. That's why the Bible tells us to fix our eyes on not what is seen, but what is unseen. It tells us to walk by faith, not by sight. And furthermore, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So what are the weapons that Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians? Well, luckily, he spells it out. He defines it clearly in his letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. He says that we've got a much better chance of standing firm against our spiritual enemy, the day-to-day struggles if we're wearing the armor of God right? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes that are fitted with the readiness that comes with spreading the gospel of peace, the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, we got to put on Christ, because Christ is all that stuff. But once you've got all the armor on, there's still one thing left to do. And this is the thing that's really going to give you power, Paul says you've got to pray. Beginning in Ephesians 6, verse 18, right after the description of the armor. So it's still part of that conversation. Put on all this armor, and then Paul says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. That's us. So Paul tells us to be alert and always keep praying. And he wants us to be alert because we need to be aware of our spiritual enemy's schemes. You see, our spiritual enemy doesn't want us to be aware of what he's up to. He doesn't even want us to believe in him. He wants us to think that he's a fictional character in some fairy tale. But when we do that, we are oblivious to his schemes and his traps and his lies. So we've got to be watching, anticipating his next move. Not living in fear of him, but just being preemptive in our living for Christ. And prayer helps us be aware of the things that's happening in the spiritual realm. Prayer gives us the ability to, to tune in with God, which gives us clarity to the things that are really going on. It opens our eyes. And so when we call upon God in prayer, God responds. You may not know it, you may not recognize it, you may not feel it, but he promised in his word that he would, and so he does. We're reminded of his protection in Psalm 91. This whole psalm is really a great prayer of protection. I'm just going to share the first four verses, though. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge My place of safety, he is my God, and I trust him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. 
He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you in his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Listen, prayer is the divinely ordained mechanism that God has given to us that serves as the key to unlock power that is beyond our protection. Let me repeat that. Prayer is the divinely ordained mechanism that God has given to us that serves as the key to unlock power that is beyond our capability. We can't fight the enemy by ourselves. We can't defeat his schemes and his traps without God. We can't do life the way God wants us to do life without prayer. Prayer is what gives us power. No prayer, no power. You don't ask, you're not going to receive. And there's a lot of reasons people kind of use to avoid prayer or not have time for prayer. um, And we're really good at at justifying things and kind of making excuses. And I'm going to brag just a little bit on myself. I'm probably the best. (laughs) When it comes to prayer, you know, you may think, well, and everybody's got a different kind of theology, you know, when it comes to prayer. You may think, well, God's got it all worked out anyway. I mean, God's going to do what God does, so what's the point of me praying? You may not uh, intentionally carve out time out of your day uh, because you think that um, what you're doing is it's just got to get done. I mean, you're busy. You know, you've got assignments, you've got tasks, you've got a to-do list to complete, and so it takes every waking moment to get it all done, and so you just don't spend any time in prayer. There may be feelings of, of shame and guilt that keep you from approaching a holy God. You know, you just don't feel worthy enough. There's, there's all kinds of reasons and excuses for not going to God in prayer. But here's the deal. Every single one of those excuses are from your spiritual enemy. He doesn't want you in communion with God because he knows that once you connect with God, you have power. And even though prayer isn't Technically, a piece of the armor that Paul describes in Ephesians, it is an extremely important and effective weapon. Soldiers, warriors, athletes, moms, business professionals, teachers, students, they've all been using prayer as armor since the beginning of time. In fact, in the, in the story of, of David and Goliath, David takes off the physical armor before he begins his battle. You may remember the story. David's a young man. He's a little too young to join the army, but he finds himself on the front line, right? At the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And David feels compelled to go out and and fight this Philistine named Goliath. He's been taunting the Israelites for 40 days, and nobody's going out there. He's just too big. He's too mean. He's too powerful. Nobody wants to face him. David volunteers to do it. Everybody's shocked and But King Saul, the king, places his armor on David, puts on his belt on him, you know, his breastplate, his helmet. He gives David his sword. David walks around a little bit and and he takes it all off. It's too big. It's too clangy. It's too cumbersome. It wasn't the armor that he needed for this particular battle because he wasn't just fighting some guy named Goliath. He was fighting the enemy of the Lord. And so David walks out onto the battlefield. 
He meets Goliath face to face and he says, you come at me with sword and with spear and with javelin and with all of this armor, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. That was it. Friends, that's power. And when we pray, we pray in the name of the one who redeems, the one who forgives, the one who conquered death, the one who rose from the grave, the one who transforms us and sanctifies us. We pray in the name that is above every name so that when it is spoken, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is why our prayers have power. And if this church is going to continue to reach new people, to teach people, to be a conduit of God's grace and a sanctuary of God's presence, if we're going to walk beside people in the transformation process, then I need your prayers. The staff needs your prayers. The leadership team needs your prayers. Which leads to the fourth pledge in this series. I am a church member. So I will pray for my pastor every day. You can change that to church leaders. I will pray for the church leaders every day. I understand that, they, that their work is never ending. Their days are filled with numerous demands that bring emotional highs and lows. They must deal with critics and they must be a good husband and a father, just spouse in general, because they cannot do all things in his power. I will pray for their strength and their wisdom every single day. These pledges um, that we've had, we've had one every single week. If you're just kind of jumping into the series, we've got one of these every week. Uh, But they are defining who we are as a church body. Essentially, they are shaping the DNA of the vine at Cabot. And at the end of this series, we're all going to have an opportunity to to become members of this congregation. And and the prayer is that, that we will be different than every other social organization out there in the world, right? We'll be different. We'll be set apart. That we'll be a group of people that, that serve one another. That give to the cause of Christ. That unify the body. Lift each other up, right? And that we pray in the name of Jesus for each other. I hope you'll stick with us for the next two weeks as we finish up this series. Next week, we're going to be focused on leading our families to love the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your written word. Not only for the instructions in it, God, but also the warnings. Because if it was up to us, God, we we would probably choose not to believe in a spiritual enemy. But you've clearly said there is one. And as bad as we want to believe that we've got everything we need on our own to live a successful life, a faithful life, a a life of purity and honor and all of that respect. We don't. We are deceiving ourselves. So God, we just rely on you. We rely on your power and your love, your grace, your transformation, sanctification in our lives. God, help us, God, to, to think throughout the week that we need to spend time in prayer and then give us a dose of humility to bow down on our knees and just pray, to acknowledge you, to worship you, to allow you 
to open our eyes and see things differently. God, we love you. We pray all of this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.